Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of June 2021 and this is episode 211. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Dr John Spencer about his recent work on the influence and career of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson during the Great War. This book is published by Helion & Co. John spoke to me over the interweb from his home in England. Hi John, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, certainly. Well, I am um, a child of the 60s, so like most small boys of that period i was brought up on victor comics and commando comics and uh, airfix soldiers and the films and so on of that period but um probably second world war that was my particular interest until quite recently my paternal grandmother though often told stories of her elder brother who'd been killed on the Somme at the age of 17. So that was my sort of abiding memory or thoughts, first thoughts about the Great War. But it wasn't until about 10 years ago when I signed up to do the part-time MA at the University of Birmingham, as probably so many people listening to this podcast have done over the years, uh, that really got my interest in the Great War going. I enjoyed that very much. I'm particularly interested in the senior command elements of it and how that worked alongside the political masters that soldiers had to deal with. I've been a political journalist for many years, so that sort of area of, uh, of history interests me greatly. So I did the, the MA at Birmingham and concentrated in my dissertation on Woolly Robertson as Chief of Staff in 1915. And then when I decided to take that forward and do a, do a doctorate, it seemed logical to pick a similar area of interest. Uh, hence my uh, move to uh, Robertson's nemesis, if you like, um, Henry Wilson. Which brings me neatly on to the next question. Why did you write a book on Sir Henry Wilson? Well, I, I thought there was more to say about him. Um, there have been quite a few books written about him over the last century, as, as we'll no doubt discuss, and lots of other reference to him in other volumes, mainly of a very derogatory nature, classifying him simply as an intriguer and a politicker. Um, he was certainly those things, but the usual characterization is quite a one-dimensional one, and I was interested to find out if there was anything more to him and the more research I did the more I realized that he was quite an influential figure and in some respects positively influential uh, especially in the latter part of the war so I thought he was he was worthy of more research he's also an intriguing character to say the least he's very tall very thin angular guy of Irish descent and very much a silver-tongued individual the sort of bloke you would probably be very keen to go out for a pint with but perhaps not um, trust him in, in other ways. A character, certainly, with as many friends as enemies. So he's an intriguing and interesting person uh, and worth a few years of my time, I think. So let's start at the beginning. Could you tell us about Wilson's sort of family, education, character, personal life and early sort of education and his evolving political view? Yeah, so he was um, a member of a well-to-do but not well-off Anglo-Irish family based in um, a small small town called Curry Grain in, in what we now know as the Republic of Ireland. His family 
were of the Protestant ascendancy, which meant he was very much of a tradition based in based in British unionism, if you like. He was no sympathiser with Irish home rule or any of the issues which came to the fore at the end of the 19th century. And his love of Irish u- unionism was literally his unmaking, uh, uh, once again, as we'll no doubt discuss later, um, but dominated his political views and often blinkered his, uh, his approach to uh, what he might achieve and you know re- the reality of, um, of, of politics in Britain at that period. He had a typical upbringing of, a, of his period, born in 1864, he went to Marlborough School where he was educated and wanted to pursue a career in the army, so many of his class and education did. But he failed to get into both Woolwich and Sandhurst, attempting both several times, but finally got a commission via the back door, as it used to be called, serving in the uh, militia and then joined the Royal Rifle Corps, obviously a smart regiment for men of his type. Uh, he did serve briefly in Burma as a young man, where he was wounded in an attack by a, a local um, bandit, and he was badly disfigured with a cut across his face. It, uh, it was a scar that remained with him throughout his life, and he's alleged to have reveled in his reputation as the ugliest man in the British Army. So he went to the Staff College in the early 1890s, where he met Henry Rawlinson, who became a close friend throughout his life, actually. And it was Rawlinson who introduced him to Lord Roberts, Bobs, uh, who became a mentor and sponsor uh, for the early part of Wilson's career. So I'll start that again. So what was his, his personal life like? Well, um, he married um, a, a woman two years is older than he, named of Cecil. She uh, was the love of his life. Um, he and she, fortunately for them, didn't have any family, uh, any children. And it appears to have been a point of great sadness for um, But they were very close to a number of their nieces and nephews, who they often provided um, home and a home life and accommodation for. Cecil, as perhaps predictably an army officer's wife, followed Wilson uh, around in his various postings. He always made every effort at weekends, even when chief of the Imperial General Staff, to try to get home at weekends to see his wife and also to dig in his garden. seemed to be his other great interest, even in later life. But um, in other respects, um, from a personal perspective, he had both friends and enemies. He seemed a very clubbable man, uh, but only with people who were of a similar clubbable nature. I suspect a lot of people found him a bit too uh, heavy going. Um, uh, He was um, notoriously disrespectful um, of authority and convention when it suited him. No doubt caused a lot of people to raise their eyebrows at his behaviour. But he was a intriguer. Um, he did like gossip. He encouraged it, indulged in it, which made him enemies, unsurprisingly. He was also, I think it's fair to say, the sort of man who couldn't see an ankle without wanting to tap it, um, uh, especially if it was in pursuit of his own ambitions. And he was certainly an ambitious individual. So I wonder whether you could briefly uh, outline his sort of military career up to the outbreak of war. Yeah, so he... 
after leaving Staff College, he got himself a position at the War Office and served there for three years in the intelligence section. Um, he concentrated on France. He, he spoke French reasonably well. It's often been written that he spoke French fluently, but nobody knew him best, and he spoke it reasonably well. He spoke it far better than most of his contemporaries, though, so which is of advantage. And working there in the War Office, rather than as a regimental officer, um, found himself at the age of 31, the youngest staff officer in the British Army. Intellectually, he was no dunce, but he seemed to prefer bluster and a sort of silver tongue at times to hard work. don't know whether that reminds us of anybody today. But unlike Rawlinson, he missed out on the Sudan War of 1898, but then managed to um, get a much prized posting to the South Africa the following year. And one of it was one of the many young officers in the British Army who learned the practical art of war fighting the Boers. While in South Africa, he soon joined the staff of Lord Roberts. Again, I think, thanks to the influence of Rawlinson, Roberts by then was commander-in-chief in in South Africa um, and returned to Britain with Bobs at the end of 1900. And he spent the next five years climbing the greasy pole at the war office um, and began to get to know various senior politicians of that period, including Arthur Balfour, uh, Winston Churchill, and other leading movers and shakers who he would maintain contact with and um, find either friends or foes amongst them for the rest of career. And in 1905, it seemed this seemed to happen at that period, he became a he was appointed commandant of the Staff College at Camberley. This was in succession to Rawlinson, and he was the immediate predecessor of Woolly Robertson. So see that it was a sort of, seems to be a career move for office, senior officers at period. And he spent three years there, did Wilson, reforming the syllabus at the Staff College and making it more relevant to modern warfare. At the end of that experience, in 1910, he was appointed director of military operations at the War Office. Uh, this was a really pivotal position and he was responsible for developing, not establishing, um, closer working relations with the French army and planning for uh, a potential war with Germany should that ever happen. And of course, many know and be aware of Wilson's very detailed planning for the deployment of the British Expeditionary Force that had taken at that time, which uh, a plan which uh, worked like clockwork in 1914. So he was a key player in Anglo-French military planning in the run up to the war. He came a bit of a cropper in March 1914 when he encouraged British officers at the Curra camp near Dublin uh, to refuse to deploy north um, and potentially come into conflict with us dear unionists. It lost him friends in the army who thought that he'd encouraged them but finally betrayed them and it also caused him um, to lose favour with politicians who considered him a plotter uh, and an intriguer and his relationship with Herbert Henry Asquith, the Prime Minister, never recovered. So at the start of the Great War, Wilson was the architect of the BEF's plans to move to France, which, as I said, were very successful. But in terms of his uh, position to, uh, position with decision makers, he blotted his copybook serious. And how have historians portrayed uh, Wilson and his military career? Um, well, he has this this characteristic of politicking and loving the love of intrigue and gossip dominates, and he is seen by most historians as in that very one-dimensional role with little else to contribute, um, really riding on the backs of other greater thinkers and greater military 
operatives. Keith Jeffrey, the late great Keith Jeffrey, wrote a uh, perhaps best called a revisionist view of Wilson's career called A Political Soldier some years ago, which was quite superb and took a much broader view of Wilson. It did describe him in the subtitle as a political soldier, which was entirely correct. Uh, but it, it, it was a corrective, but it did uh, devote a great deal of time to Wilson's interest in domestic politics. And um, there's probably more to be said um, about his military thinking. But typically, he's seen as, as, a, as an intriguer, as a gossip monger, as a politician, if you like, and not a serious soldier, which I think is is incorrect. I think there's far more to him. So, so that, that leads us neatly on to the next part of his life, his career during the First World War. Now, what sort of um, roles and commands did he hold during the conflict? Well, as I say, having blotted his copybook in early 1914, he didn't get the position he coveted. He'd hoped to be Chief of Staff to Sir John French. Um, French was a friend of Wilson's. They were similar characters in some ways, meteoric and uh, clubbable. But he was passed over for that position um, and made instead, uh, given instead the incongruous and strange position of sub-chief of staff to Sir Archibald Murray. Um, Murray was not a character that French had wanted. He wasn't the most forceful individual. um, And it meant that Wilson was able to conspire behind his back and undermine him to some extent, which obviously doesn't seem um, fair. Um, in hindsight, Murray seemed to be a hardworking and competent individual, but he was overwhelmed by the challenge which faced the the, uh, the British Expeditionary Force in 1914. He struggled with the role um, throughout 1914, um, and by the end of that year, it was evident that Archibald Murray needed replacing. Once again, Wilson thought this was his opportunity. French supported his promotion, but Asquith blackballed him, decided that he wasn't going to get the post and instead it went to um, uh, William Sir Woolley Robertson who'd done well as quartermaster general to the BEF and was a much more much less divisive figure Um, this deeply upset Wilson and he found himself spending a year as uh, chief liaison officer between the British and French armies Uh, actually this was an ideal position for Wilson as I said he spoke French He got on well with French officers, not all of them, but plenty of them. He was able to see things from their perspective as the principal protagonist of the Allies in 1915, uh, which was more than some of his British contemporaries were. He fulfilled this role extremely well, I feel. It is an area that I think has been ignored to some extent in the past, or passed over at least. He was a very influential karma of nerves, if you like, between two very uh, emotional characters, John French leading the BEF and um, Joffre leading the French. These, these were two highly strong individuals. And often when they were at, uh, when relations were under pressure and almost at breaking point, Wilson was able to intervene and smooth the matters over. And I, I think it's a it's an element of his role that really um, is, isn't given enough. He isn't given enough credit for what he did in the period. Um, but it was disappointing for him and frustrating for him. And I'm not sure he saw the value in what he was doing at that time. At the end of that year, a year in which he thought he still stood a chance of further promotion, um, his hopes were dashed again when Robertson 
was promoted from chief of staff uh, to chief of the imperial general staff, in other words, the political head of the army and the government's principal military advisor. And French, of course, was replaced by Haig. So from then on, you had Haig and Robertson in close alliance um, with little role for Wilson. Wilson found himself shuffled off to the B commander of Fourth Corps um, in what was then a quiet area of the Western Front around Arras, which was an undistinguished and unrewarding period for him throughout 1916. Sorry, we've got... So, so what, what, what roles did Wilson do in 1917 and 1918? So in 1917, um, Wilson found himself essentially without a job um, and on half pay. He'd, he'd had an undistinguished period, as I said, in 1916 on the Western Front, came back to Britain. Um, and it was at the time when Joffre had just been replaced by... General Nivelle. Lloyd George had become British Prime Minister um, and tired as he was already of what he saw as endless, costly and futile offensives on the Western Front, Lloyd George was casting around for new ideas. He saw Nivelle's very positive plans for a major victory on the Western Front as a perfect opportunity for the British to once again allow the French to do much of the fighting and much of the dying with some limited help from the British. Lloyd George was keen to reduce British casualties on the Western Front after the disaster, as he saw it, of the Somme. Um, He saw an opportunity with Nivelle's offensive to place Haig's leadership, which he thought was costly and ill-advised, under the authority of Nivelle. In other words, putting the British army under the orders of the French. Of course, this was hugely controversial, deeply opposed by both Haig and Robertson. And Lloyd George came up with the idea, firstly, of, in a sense, protecting his own position, but also somehow softening British objections by putting Wilson in once again as liaison officer between the British and the French. The idea was he was a very senior figure and in theory trusted by both the British and the French. Um, Even Wilson found himself um, unhappy about this, very uncomfortable about what he might be able to achieve in this role and fully understood that he would really be suspected of disloyalty by both sides. The French would consider him too British, the British would consider him too French, which is exactly what happened. Um, But as we know, the Nivelle offensive was not the success. It had been billed. Um, Nivelle was quickly replaced. Wilson returned to the UK with his tail between his legs. Um, Nivelle's successor, Peytan, was was deeply suspicious of Wilson, saw him as um, untrustworthy and too much of an ally of Foch, who was a a sort of a rival of Peytan's in terms of strategy. So he had him sent home. Um, and once again, Wilson found himself kicking his heels in Britain um, for a goodly part of 1917. Spent a lot of time during that period smoozing politicians, um, make, reinforcing his relationships with some unionist politicians especially, and arguing, as he had done throughout a war for much more focused conscription um, of, of British troops. He didn't. He still didn't think that the the British government was fighting the war seriously. I think he's wrong in that, but that that was his view at that time. But of course, the um, the Nivelle offensive had failed, which meant that Haig, in a sense, had now free reign 
um, to pursue his own campaign in 1917. Lloyd George's was, was deeply damaged by his support in Nivelle. And we then have the Battle of Thirty, or the Campaign of Thirty, which once again, of course, was initially successful, but ultimately hugely expensive um, to the British. By the autumn of 1917, Lloyd George had had enough. He was desperate to find a new way of fighting. He was completely disillusioned with the strategy of Haig and Robertson, although Haig and Robertson disagreed in important ways about strategy in 1917. They did present a very united front in the face of the politicians, the frock coats. And so Lloyd George was looking for a way to try to if you like, disarm Hay and somehow limit his authority and power. Um, in October of that year, 1917, he invited both Robertson and Haig to present on papers on what the campaign for 1918 would look like. Unsurprisingly, the two of them came up with nothing more original than yet another Western Front, major Western Front offensive. They had no interest in any other theatre. Lloyd George was, of course, known for his love of the idea that sideshows in other theatres might be the solution to defeating Germany. So, infuriated by this lack of imagination as he saw it, Lloyd George turned to the unemployed Wilson and asked him to come up with his own suggestion. Uh, Wilson was encouraged to work with Sir John French. Uh, French, of course, was also, in a sense, kicking his heels, having lost his command um, at the end of 1915. He was deeply resentful, was, was John French of both Haig and Robertson, who he saw not unreasonably as responsible, at least in part, for his downfall. So the two of them went away and spent a week writing separate papers on what policy in 1918 should look like. Um, they conferred a lot, so unsurprisingly, they were very similar in their recommendations but Wilson's was far less personal than that written by John French. And so Wilson's was the paper that was taken before the cabinet and was deeply influential. It had two main elements. The most important was that it recommended that the Allies, the British and the French, sit on the defensive on the Western Front in 1918 until the arrival in force of the Americans. In other words, returning to the uh, British way in war in that um, the Americans would do the fighting uh, in 1918 once their numbers were big enough. Interestingly though, and despite his knowledge that Lloyd George wanted a recommendation about uh, a new campaign in the Middle East, he specifically ruled such a major offensive out. So critics of Wilson who claim that he was entirely beholden to Lloyd George um, would do anything Lloyd George wanted and agree with him and simply create policy around Lloyd George's whims is incorrect. Even at this stage, before he'd obtained any real power, he was unprepared to recommend that a major offensive in the East. But in any case, this was good enough for Lloyd George. The other key element, which has been somewhat overlooked in his paper, was the recommendation that there should be a formal body established for inter-allied cooperation and strategy. Until this point, it's hard to believe now, but until October 1917, allied strategy really had been very ad hoc in its creation. There were occasional conferences between heads of state and senior officers 
but they usually ended with recommendations and agreements rather than formal decisions. And very often it meant, and there was no formal system for policy making and for and, and recommendations on policy from military specialists. Uh, so Wilson recommended the setting up of one of these bodies, which became the Supreme War Council, which was set up um, over the winter of 1917-18 at the Palace of Versailles outside Paris. Each of France, Italy and Britain had, uh, and ultimately the US, had their own military representatives at that um, body. Wilson was chosen by Lloyd George to be the British representative. And due to initial lack of interest and drive from the other allies, really throughout that period, Wilson dominated the, the work of the Supreme War Council and the creation of policy, at least the creation of policy recommendations for how the war should be fought in 1918 and indeed in 1919. So he's quite a significant figure in this period. He was very close to, increasingly close to Lloyd George and viewed with growing nervousness and suspicion by both Haig and Robertson, who began to feel that the risk was that policy was being drawn up not by them, but by another group of individuals, a group Robertson referred to as the Versailles Soviet, and given to government in that form, um, which obviously was not the way he saw things should be done and not the way the British system in theory allowed. So tensions between Wilson and Robertson grew exponentially over this period, leading ultimately to Robertson's resignation in February 1918. He felt he'd been undermined. He wanted to be the sole arbiter of advice given to the government. In fact, that was written in his contract, if you like. And when Wilson came along and was offering alternative advice, he couldn't stomach it. A row developed, too complicated to go into now, probably. But he ended, in any case, ended up with Robertson's effective resignation and Wilson's elevation to his post of Chief of the Imperial General Staff. Uh, so from a year earlier, where he was essentially kicking his heels looking for work, Wilson had become the most senior soldier in the British Army. You've alluded to this already, but how was he viewed by sort of contemporary frocks in Bro or contemporary frocks and brass hats, in other words, politicians and generals? He had a number of friends amongst the politicians, not surprisingly, perhaps, because he could talk their language and he was interested in them. Many military officers of this period viewed politicians, perhaps not unreasonably, with suspicion, almost as a different race, if you like. And it was seen as very infradig by most of them to associate with politicians and really to have very much to do with them at all. Wilson was quite different, as I said. He, he enjoyed the company of politicians. He was uh, a great critic of Asquith, who was prime minister in the first half of the war. He saw him as not committed enough to the cause, um, flaky and unreliable. He realised that Lloyd George was the great driving force. And although they got on reasonably well for a period, I don't think it's fair to say that they were great friends. They were probably too alike in their, in their behaviours and in their love of uh, double dealing and gossip. But it, it shouldn't be, he, he, his, his relationships with many of his officer, brother officers were strained, especially with Hagen and Robertson for reasons I've already, I think, explained. Um, but he had very many strong friends as well. Rawlinson in particular was a great admirer of, of Wilson and vice versa. It should also be remembered that um, British officers of this 
seniority in this period themselves indulged in lots of career politicking. Um, it's wrong to suggest that Wilson was the only one. The difference with Wilson is that he was quite open about it and made no secret of his politicking and his ambitions and his desire to have his views accepted. Haig himself was a great uh, uh, political general. He survived as and prospered as commander-in-chief on the Western Front despite numerous setbacks and despite uh, problems from his French contemporaries who were often critical of him. Robertson too was a, was a, a consummate politician uh, in the sense that he, he knew full well how to run the war office in the way he wanted it, was ruthless in the extreme uh, when opposed. And so Wilson wasn't unique in any way. He was just more overt about it than, than his contemporary. So when you look back on Wilson and his career during the Great War, what was his impact in your assessment sort of on military strategy and policy, inter-allied inter relations and coalition warfare? Well, I think that phrase coalition warfare is the key. Um, Wilson really was not so much the architect of that because he, he wasn't working alone, but he certainly understood the need for the Allied powers to fight as a coalition, as we would understand it now. He was, throughout the war, anxious to ensure proper cooperation between the British and the French, to ensure that, where possible, strategy was drawn up um, involving both sides in an in a open and fair way. And certainly in 1970, late 1917, when the French army was still suffering the consequences of, of the Nivelle offensive and the huge losses they'd suffered there, when morale there was very bad, he was able to ensure that the British and the French cooperated where possible. And the French in particular understood, although they may have been frustrated by it very often, British problems and the stresses the British uh, were facing. He did this mainly through his friendship with Foch. And when in March 1918, Foch became commander-in-chief of the Allied armies, supreme commander, if you like, the two then worked very closely together. He'd been, had Wil Wilson had been a key supporter of Foch, was extremely keen that Foch should take command of the um, Allied armies on the Western Front, persuaded Haig successfully that this was a good idea um, after the uh, March offensives. And throughout that period, of the rest of 1918 was able to influence Allied policy by ensuring that the British and the French really were joined at the hip in terms of um, the way the war was conducted. I think it's something that's been underestimated in the past uh, and one that's worthy of um, recognition. He was he had many flaws, did Wilson, but he, he was extremely aware of the need for the French and the British um, to maintain good relations and knew that if France dropped out of the war at the end of 1917, early 1918, the war was lost. So he was pivotal in that relationship. And what happened to him after the war? Well, after the war, um, he remained as chief of the Imperial General Staff. He soon fell out with with Lloyd George. Uh, Lloyd George had been losing faith in Wilson in 1918, really. He didn't see he was 
particularly different, as it turned out, from Haig and Robertson. Uh, he just thought he was, um, and perhaps not unreasonably actually, considered him as much a Western Front fanatic as those two, and that's probably fair. Uh, by 19, the end, by the end of the war, Lloyd George, as I say, had become disillusioned with Wilson, but he kept him on as chief of the Imperial General Staff. In that role, um, he was influential in trying to define British policy, British foreign policy into the new world. He realised early on, and was one of the first to do so, I think, that Britain really found itself in a position of imperial overstretch by now. The army, uh, the military as a whole, was obviously unaffordable at the wartime levels of numbers and cost and was being rapidly demobilised. Um, yet Britain's empire was the biggest it had been in its history, uh, covering a quarter of the globe. And really, Wilson realised that this was completely unsustainable and lobbied, to some extent unsuccessfully, for a reduction, a withdrawal, if you like, in British commitments around the world. He said that uh, he described the key areas he wanted to concentrate on as storm centres, uh, in other words, places that were likely to have major issues if, if they weren't uh, focused on by politicians, uh, India, Egypt, in other words, Suez Canal, and of course, Ireland, um, his great interest. He was not particularly successful in that. And by 1922, um, understood that his role really had, had run its course. He stepped down in early 1922 to become an MP a unionist MP, unsurprisingly, for a seat in what's now Northern Ireland, North Down. So a, a potentially interesting, maybe not stellar, political career stood ahead of him. However, on the 22nd of June 1922, Wilson in full field marshal uniform, including a sword, he went to Liverpool Street Station to avail a memorial to those who'd fallen in the Great War. He conducted that uh, ceremony. Um, there's a film of him doing it. Went back to his club, The Travellers, then got in a cab and went home to 36 Eaton Place. Um, when he got out of the cab, two men approached him and shot him six times, um, killing him. Um, it's said that he's the only British field marshal to die in combat. Um, he's said to have, by some, to have um, raised his sword on these two assailants, but that's in a matter of dispute. So these two men were Irish Republicans, um, allied to the, uh, associated with the IRA, um, unhappy with Wilson's position on Ireland uh, and home rule. Um, both of them actually were Great War veterans. Both had served in the British Army. One of them had lost a leg, in fact. Anyway, they killed Wilson. He was dead on his doorstep. They tried to make good their escape, but uh, were captured, badly beaten, imprisoned, tried. And in August of that year, they were hanged. And essentially, that was the, well, that, and so that was the end of Henry Wilson, uh, but not of his reputation, of course. Which leads us on to um, the final question on Wilson. What do you think his legacy was? I think his legacy wasn't long-lived. He was manifestly wrong on Ireland and the future of that island, um, although it wasn't unusual, of course, for his period and for his class. He was fundamentally important in maintaining strong Anglo-French relations towards the end of the Great War, at a time of greatest risk and threat to the British state and the future of the Allied cause. However, that was soon overtaken by events. Um, Foch, like Wilson, 
was unhappy with the outcome of the Treaty of Versailles. Foch, of course, predicted a mere 20-year peace and a subsequent war. It's a view that Wilson held to as well, to some extent, although not as strongly as Foch. Really, his reputation rather than his legacy is what we all now remember. But I think his principal contribution was that uh, recognition of the need for proper Anglo-French cooperation, which did help uh, produce victory on the Western Front. My penultimate question is, what projects are you currently working on? Uh, at the moment, I'm, uh, I've gone back to um, uh, my interest in William Robertson, and I'm writing a chapter on him for um, the latest book in Spencer Jones' series of essays uh, on, on the Great War. And I'm interested, I'm considering more work on Wilson's diaries. I spent a long time photographing every page of Wilson's wartime diaries at the Imperial War Museum, and I've um, transcribed most of those now. And I'm interested in seeing whether there might be uh, some kind of publication in 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 a in an annotated version of those diaries. And finally, John, where can people get your book from? Um, well, my, my book Wilson's War came out a few months ago. It's published by Helion and is available through all uh, uh, all uh, usual websites, or maybe the odd bookshop. Who knows? But I'd also recommend people look to. I'd also though recommend people um, look to Keith Jeffrey's book, Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, a Political Soldier. That is a full biography of Wilson's life. Mine concentrates on Wilson's war years. So I think and hope that mine complements the late uh, great Keith Jeffrey. John, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>